0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've sung that worship is all about Jesus. And we thank you that we can come to worship you and we can come to look at your word. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak through what David has written and through my words this morning as well. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If we're followers of Jesus, of course, we uh, know that we've got a lot to be thankful for. We've got all the promises in the Bible to rest our lives on. But of course, if we're real, we know that life isn't always like that. There can be many difficult times, there can be many sadnesses, there can be many problems that we have. Well, what's good about this psalm that we've got in front of us this morning is it deals with these issues and it illustrates one man's response to his life with his God. And it illustrates also one of the main purposes of the psalms that we are looking at in our series. That is that the psalms were a songbook of the people of God when they gathered for corporate worship together. And they would sing this psalm together, which focuses on one man's faith and actions when times of difficulty arise. But it also shows the confidence in God and his ability to worship God through good and bad times. Now as Will has already said to us, uh, the commentators seem to think that this psalm was written Uh, after King David had fled into the desert because his son Absalom had rebelled and taken over the government of the land. Truly, this must have been a bad time for David. We read of this in 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. It says this, David fled the city, that is Jerusalem, crossed the brook Kidron and went into the wilderness. And so probably this is the background to this song that we have in front of us. So let's have it in front of us. We're on page 579. Now, in verse 1, we read that David is a man of faith who has a relationship with God. And this is not a general faith. It's not a faith in the religion of his day. No, here he is claiming that God is his God. And in my notes I've highlighted his. It's his God. The implication is that God is everything to him. It's a personal issue. He can't make a stronger statement. You, God, are my God. So, firstly then, these words written in verse 1 make plain the tremendously important fact that that the seeking and thirsting for God, which we will see of in a moment, is not the seeking of a man who was unacquainted with God. It is not the seeking of a man who had no relationship with God. On the contrary, O God, thou art my God, is the deepest affirmation that between David and God there is a covenant, a relationship based on God's oath. God has said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will be their God. And so when David says, O God, thou art my God, he reasserts this fact. This is what his faith is based upon. This is the rock under which the quicksands of his own emotions is found. So when he cries out, O oh God, thou art my God, he doesn't mean that he is lifted above the pangs of problems, of soul thirsting, of, of issues that are giving him uh, sadness. But when he says, O oh God, thou art my God, he means at least... Two things. When he thirsts, he will seek to slate his thirst on God alone and not on anything else. O God, thou art my God. And then he means that when he seeks his God, God will be there and God will meet his need. O God, thou art my God. But note also what we read in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Not only does he say, oh God, you are my God, and my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land, but he says, earnestly I seek you, earnestly I seek you. Now the word earnestly means, in the Oxford Dictionary, with sincere and intense conviction. Seriously so. So this is not a faint longing or a faint effort. No, it's with the greatest effort and conviction of God's character and promises. And David seeks him in his time of trouble. Now we know, of course, that David was a man of great faith. A man who had seen God at work. Think from the stories we know about David. Think from the earliest time in his life when he was called by God. When God had helped him defeat Goliath, that giant, when God had kept him safe from Saul. And despite all these experiences, David still needed to seek after God again. And so we see that if David needed to seek God, how much more do we need to do so in our lives and worship each day? And so are we like David this morning, when we're driven into the wilderness by tragic and painful circumstances and we begin to suck for air in the quicksends of our emotions, when we're overwhelmed by what is happening to us, can we cry out like David, O God, Thou art my God. The covenant stands, there is a rock beneath, and it will rise in time to support us. Well, of course, this begs the basic question, doesn't it? do we have a covenant relationship with God this morning? Because this is the bedrock of this psalm for David. If you say, well, what is this? What's it like? What's this covenant relationship? Well, let me read you the words of a man who made a covenant with God when he was 19 years old. That man was Jonathan Edwards truly a great theologian of the 18th century, who wrote about this some years li- later like this. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He says, On January the 12th, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no respect my own to act as one who had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and happiness, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, and his law were for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. Now, of course... These are 18th century words, aren't they? But you get the message, don't you? Jonathan Edwards, who was involved later in life in a great renewal in America, was declaring his intention of giving up all for God. Well, have we made a decisive covenant commitment to God? Have we ever met Jesus Christ standing in our lives, standing on our way, having tracked us down on the path of wanting to be boss of our own lives, and in his hands a declaration of amnesty from God, signed with his own blood, the blood of Jesus on the cross? And have we ever looked into his eyes and heard him say, the king will cancel our debt and forgive our rebellion and welcome us into his kingdom if we will kneel and swear faith and loyalty to him forever? Have we knelt like Jonathan Edwards and made this covenant oath O God, henceforth in faith and loyalty, thou art my God. Well, if you haven't done so, as you listen this morning, I urge you to do it, because all of us can reaffirm our covenant vows with Jesus. Why is this so important? Well, it's so important in this psalm because the whole of Psalm 63 is built on this foundation of a commitment to God. For us, of course, through the saving action of Jesus on the cross who made a new covenant with us if we accept it and have a relationship with him. Because the rest of this teaching of this psalm depends upon this. So let's go back then to verse 1. You've got the NIV version in front of you. The RSV and the ESV translation puts it like this. O God, thou art my God, I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, my flesh faints for thee in a dry and weary land where no water is. Let us see this clearly this morning, because it's so important for the understanding of our own saved souls. God is worshipped and honoured and savoured, both by the fainting for him and by the feasting on him. It's straight out of the text, isn't it? That we can worship God in fainting and by feasting. So in the RSV version it says, Go God, thou art my God, I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, my faith flesh faints for thee, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. And then the Lord of the covenant comes, the rock rises to meet David's feet. The banquet of his glory is spread out before the eyes of faith. And David says, it, David says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And so we see here through this psalm that God is worshipped, honoured and savoured both when we faint for him and when we feast on him. Fainting is the form of worship when God is distant and times are tough and maybe there's doubt in our hearts and maybe for us now, uh, but the feasting, of course, is when he is near. So the heart that savours God above all things will experience yearning and longing, thirsting and panting, fainting as well, when the vision of God is distant and dim. And that same heart will experience feasting and satisfaction when the vision draws near and becomes clear. And I believe this can be a great help and encouragement to us this morning when we wake up when times are bad and we are in the wilderness. And this might come about because of illness, because of death of loved ones, family problems, work problems, opposition to our faith by others. And some of us will wake up there every day. So what then does true worship look like according to Psalm 63. Well, the first thing we see is that even though worship does involve expressions of thankfulness to God for his gifts, this is not the essence of true worship. In fact, there is a gratitude to God for his gifts that is not true worship in it at all. In other words, there are people who love their health, their family, their jobs, their hobbies, and they thank God for them often but they don't love God. They don't savour God. And when God is not savoured for the sweetness and excellence of who he is, he is not worshipped. Now David makes this plain in the way he expresses his longings and his seeking of God. If you look at verses 1 again, 3 and 6. In verse 1 he says, I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, my flesh faints for thee. This is not primarily a thirst for any of God's gifts. It's a thirst for God himself. David has a heart for God. He has a taste for fellowship with God. He makes this even more explicit in verse 3 because he says, Because thy steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify thee. Now this means that, God, that David wanted God more than he wanted life itself. And if you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys of this life, the joys of family, health, food, job satisfaction or whatever. The Apostle Paul reiterates this in Philippians 1 verse 21 when he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when David says that the love of God is better than life and therefore better than all the beauty that life means, he is not denying that all these good things come from the love of God. Now, what he's doing is he's warning us, rather if our hearts settle down even gratefully on the beauty of the gift and do not yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver, then we are idolaters and not worshippers of God. True worship must centre upon God himself. And I wonder, is this why we cannot do without these wilderness experiences in life, when life is tough? Because if all of life was a paradise, as so many people think it should be, and so many try to make it, then we would much more often become addicted to saving the gifts of God rather than God himself. Surely that is why Jesus says it's hard for a rich man who had many blessings to enter the kingdom of God. And surely that is why he takes his loved ones again and again through the desert fires. He would disenchant us with the world and give us a taste for eternity. And I don't want you to think it would have come easy for David to give up the gifts of God. Not not many days after the wilderness experience, the rebellion in Jerusalem will be quelled. And Absalom dead with the darts of Joab. And David in his chamber crying, O my son Absalom, O my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. And so it seems to me that the difficult times, the wilderness experience, is the way that God weans us from the most precious things in the world. And those who savour the vision of God know that his love is better than all this life can give. So how then did David actually worship and can that help us in worship at church in God's sanctuary? Well, if you look in verses 2 to 4, you'll see some of this. Look what he says. Davis writes this, I have seen you in the sanctuary, and behold your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With the singing lips my mouth will praise you. Now we see here that David's worship comes about because he has seen God. Where has he seen God? Well, he's seen God in his power and glory during times of corporate worship within the sanctuary before he was in the wilderness, verse 2. And so we see here the importance of corporate worship. That is, worshipping together with the saints of God because this is where we should experience the glory of God and the power of God. And I'm sure that many of you will have had that experience. I've certainly had it, um, particularly at large events like New Wine. And this experience will help us when we're in the wilderness times, because this led to David experiencing a feast and singing praises to God. Verse 5. Now, neither in the Old nor the New Testament was the worship of God, of course, bound to a building. But in both, God has blessed the regular gathering of his people with the vision of his power and glory. And this is the vision that feeds our souls on Sunday mornings and at other worship times. And then later on in the wilderness, functions to remind us that God is great indeed and makes us thirst and faint for his power and and glory again. So what does this mean then for us here in church if we are regular attendees? Well, when we understand the essence of worship to be the genuine saving of God, whether through fainting or feasting, thirsting or bursting, we can treat it light we can't treat it lightly anymore. It becomes the very centrepiece of life. It becomes radically God centred. It becomes intense and earnest. It becomes for most people the only hour in the week when they become silent with reverence and awe before the power and glory of God. And of course it will include sung worship and bodily acknowledgement of the power and authority of God. And so we have a reference in verse 4 to the lifting up of our hands to God to acknowledge his power and and authority. And therefore, as a congregation and church, we need, don't we, to do everything we can to help ourselves to become like David, to go hard after God in worship. But how are we going to do this? What's it going to look like for us? Well, I've got no magic uh, suggestions for us, but as I was reading about this, one pastor had made these suggestions to his congregation, on how they could go on this journey of worshipping God. Some of you may agree with this, some of you may not agree with these suggestions, but here they are in any case. Before it, first suggestion that this pastor made was, before the service starts, each one of us to seek God, not to be spending time talking to each other, though there's nothing wrong with talking to each other, but spending time seeking God because this sets the atmosphere of peace and calm. And that's why I had those texts put up on the screen before the service began. Secondly, to have extended times of worship so that we can give God our undistracted attention and not mankind. Thirdly, to have moments of praise and meditation and offering with no verbal direction so that we can deal with God in the stillness of our own hearts and to let much of the service flow without comment or announcement so as to draw little attention away away from God and keep God at the centre of our worship. Now, some of you, of course, may well not agree with these suggestions and, uh, of course, it depends on how much effort we put in. And some of us won't agree because most of us didn't grow up in the tradition that took God-centred worship seriously. We come, don't we, to church with an attitude that comes from the society we live in. That is the attitude of entertainment. And therefore, except in the most riveting of our moments, our minds easily float from one thing to another. And the thought of exerting effort to direct the mind's attention and the heart's affection towards God is foreign. And therefore what David described in verse 2 must be learnt. So I have looked, writes David, upon thee in the sanctuary, beholding thy power and glory. Well, there we have it this morning. That's what David is saying to us. May God give us a passion and a thirsty heart to worship God in the corporate sanctuary, in the times when we meet together, to savour the vision of God, which will spread out into the community in which we live. Because the greatest witness to the community outside is the presence and power of the living God amongst us, which the Holy Spirit brings when God is the centre of our worship. Let us pray that our worship will provide us with the opportunities to experience the living God in his power and glory, which will bolster our faith in times of wilderness experiences in whatever form they take, because we know we will all experience them in our lives here on earth. Let me finish with a quote from Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins, for thy name's sake. Amen.